to episode 34 of Foreign Correspondence, a podcast that brings you interviews with journalists around the world. I'm Jake Spring, a foreign correspondent with nine years experience in Brazil and China. Yes, that's right. As of this episode, it's nine years and no longer eight years. Back on September 8th, 2011, I got on a plane to China with a bit of savings and a plan to freelance. What easily could have ended in disaster saw 24-year-old me get a job at an economics magazine called China Economic Review and then at the news agency Reuters. Eventually, it would take me to Brazil. I remember when I left the U.S., I thought, oh, I'll be gone three years max. Yeah, right. Ridiculous at this point. I will say that's the one thing about being a foreign correspondent I didn't realize when I was young. This is not something you can easily dabble in, say, a year or two outside the U.S. You have to really commit. Those nine years in retrospect seems like it all went down so easy. Where did the time go? Of course, these adventures do have a cost, not seeing your friends and family. And I would say it's weighing heavier now that international air travel is basically a no-go. The pandemic also means I probably won't be moving anytime soon, so 10 years is looking very likely. Therefore, I won't dwell on it too long. I'll save it for my 10-year anniversary. A decade, now that's a long time. So, on to our interview. This week, I'm pleased to bring you my interview with Lucia Newman, Latin America editor and a senior correspondent for Al Jazeera English, based in Chile. Lucia is a big git. I mean, it's rare I have a guest who has their own Wikipedia article, and let me say hers is not a short Wikipedia article. Let's just say my nine years abroad are nothing compared to her decades living all over, from Nicaragua to Panama, Mexico, Cuba, Argentina, and even a stint in Australia. As a Chilean-American, or perhaps American-Chilean, depending on how you look at it. Her story will take us on two or three different stages, always landing us back in Chile. And it's quite a wild ride. She goes into hiding under Pinochet briefly in Chile, runs headlong into the guerrilla warfare of Central America in the era of the Contras, and spars with Fidel Castro and her handlers in Cuba. She is a career most journalists would dream of, working at CNN and Al Jazeera. Hell, she even is played by an actress in a movie on Netflix. What more can I say? So, without further ado, here's my interview with Lucia Newman, Latin America editor based in Chile for Al Jazeera. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. You're welcome. Thank you for inviting me. To warm up a little bit, if you could just give us a little description of your physical surroundings and then where you are geographically in the world, what time it is, and a little bit about what your past work week has been like. I'm in my house in Santiago, Chile. It's Sunday, 2 p.m., and it's winter here. It's cold. We've been working under total lockdown, semi-lockdown now for five months. It's been really, really tough here in Chile because of the pandemic, where the country that has at times had the highest death toll because of COVID-19 per million inhabitants in the world and a very, very high infection rate. So it's been a roller coaster. But I still go out to work. So what did I do last week? I'm the Latin American editor, which is the English way of saying sort of like the senior Latin American correspondent for Latin America for Al Jazeera English. And not just me, but my other colleagues as well. We're covering what's happening all over the region remotely because we can't fly. I can't get up in a plane and go to Venezuela, to Brazil, to Peru or other countries in the region as I would normally do. In fact, I usually was never in Chile, or for very rarely it was in Chile. I was usually on a plane. But, but anyway, so I was doing a story last week about Iran and Venezuela. 
and how they've opened up a supermarket, the Iranians, of all things. And it's the latest symbol, if you like, of the growing alliance between the Maduro government and the government of Iran, much to the dismay and anger of the United States, which calls them pariah states. And just as I was doing the story, we got an exclusive interview with the Iranian ambassador to Venezuela, which was kind of cool, because they don't normally talk to the media. Right after that happened, and we were asking about the shipments of gasoline to Venezuela, the story came out. It was leaked initially, but it then became official that the U.S. government said that it had confiscated four or five boats, tankers with fuel that was destined for Venezuela. And the ambassador had just told us that there were no more new shipments since the first lot had been sent between May and July. And so he very quickly tweeted that that was all another sign of U.S. imperialist lies and so forth. But he did explain quite in detail in our interview that the Venezuelans hadn't asked for any more fuel and so there wouldn't be any more shipments. So anyway, that's what kept me busy for a couple of days. And then we've been doing a lot of stories from Chile, the opening and the closing of different areas that are under lockdown. Some places are doing better, some places are doing worse. A lot of stuff on COVID, a lot of stuff on the economy. We did a story on the fact that 10% of the pension funds were finally released to people which is an unusual thing for Chile because the pension funds were untouchable up until a week or two ago, you know, sacred as part of the neoliberal, as some people call it, economic system here. So anyway, that's been the last couple of weeks, and I'm preparing for news stories about how the most locked down county in the world is going to be released <laughs> from uh, on uh, Monday because they've been locked down completely. And there's a state of emergency now, and people can't go out at night after 10. That's all over the country. But this particular county has been shut down since the middle of March. So they're going to be allowed out on Monday. We'll have to see what that looks like. But what we're all expecting is that, like in other parts of the world, this is going to go up and down like a yo-yo until there is a vaccine. Right. So, I mean, those are all super interesting stories. I guess I'm curious, being for TV, I mean, if it's in Chile, you'll still go out. You'll just take yeah. precautions, I imagine, try to keep your distance from people and things like that. Is that right? That is true. Although we do stories that by their nature involve being where people are and not being able to stay too far. But, you know, it's really funny. In Latin America, people, especially in Chile, I'll just talk about Chile, but I'm sure it's like this in other places in the region. In Latin right. America, people tend to just gravitate towards each other. You just cannot talk to somebody from far away. It seems unnatural. And so people are like right in your face. This idea of personal space that's so common in Anglo-Saxon cultures, it just does not exist here. So when you say to somebody, stay away by a meter, then maybe for that just means a couple of centimeters or inches. And even if you've got the mask on, people then can't hear you as well. They don't see your eyes as well. So they don't know your expression. So it's really hard to keep people at a distance. And so I sort of find myself walking backwards as people walk towards me to kind of keep them <laughs> far away from me. And I go to slums, soup kitchens, places where land grabs have taken place and people are really, really poor areas where the contagion rate is very high and also where it's extremely crowded. So it's not easy, but we certainly do our best. Yeah, that's good. That's good. How worried about it are you? Because, I mean, is it the type of thing where the type of journalism you do, it's just there's no way around it? So you try not to worry about it too much? or Well, I try um, to do what you can do. You know, I wear a really good mask. It's made in Chile with copper nanoparticles. It's supposed to kill the little 
bacteria and the viruses that are in the air more efficiently than other kinds of masks. I wear sometimes those shields. I wash my hands and carry hand gel and do all that stuff. But that's about all you can do. And I don't do it every single day. I may go out every day to do live shots. So I'm out on the street, but nobody's near me. But these kinds of situations I've just described, I try not to do them more than a couple of times a week if I can help it, because you're really playing Russian roulette. Right. And for reporting on like the Venezuela situation, I imagine that was all done over video chat with the ambassador. Yes, we have a series of ways of doing this. I mean, I actually sometimes send a camera, which I did. I had a camera person in the embassy, and then I can ask my questions via cell phone through the producer. So we do it that way when we're able to do that. And so that means that the video quality is much better than on Zoom or Skype. Other times I do the interviews myself straight forward through these remote mechanisms that we now use more and more often. And that's even true in Chile, because I can't go to the Congress building. A lot of people will not allow anyone into their house. And you try not to be indoors too much. I try to do things outdoors. That's one of the recommendations. Don't go inside small areas, or at least if you do, don't stay too long. So people don't like even journalists going into their house. They might come out of their house and do the interview out on the street, for example, or in their garden. But these remote Things like Zoom and Skype are really a lifesaver, but they don't look as good, but they do the trick. And then there are the agencies, which we subscribe to. AP, AFP, Reuters, they have crews in most of these countries, so they send videos. If they're not doing it, then I hire crews there and tell them exactly what I want and send a reporter or a freelance fixer or producer to help out. So it's more intricate, uh, the production and the pre-production, but it can be done. Cool. Well, it sounds like you've got a pretty good handle on things five months in. So then to get into the interview proper, we like to start way, way back at the beginning. If you could just tell me where you were born, a little bit about what growing up was like, and maybe your early schooling years, and if you started to show any interest in journalism early on. I was born in London to a journalist father. My father was an extremely good journalist. I admire him to this day, and I obviously was inspired by him and his work. And since I was very, very little, he was the New York Herald Tribune correspondent in London, and that's why I was born there. My mother was a former Chilean diplomat. They both met in Moscow, where my father worked as a journalist also for the Herald Tribune, my mother as the first or second secretary of the Chilean embassy. They were both expelled under the Stalin government or regime. (laughs) at the time. So that ended up becoming a family tradition because that ended up happening to me later on. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So from a pretty young age, after London, we went to Argentina, where my father at the time worked the way that many journalists did from the New York Times, the New York Herald Tribune. They would live in very large houses, as we did, and doing a lot of socializing. In other words, invite ministers, the president, other journalists, other diplomats, to the house and there would be cocktail parties constantly with the movers and shakers of the time. And there was a big budget for that sort of thing back then, not like now where we're all on a shoestring. But so Mm -hmm. I remember I met the president, Frondiziet, and I used to see them always talking and talking passionately about politics. And I would sometimes go and sit on my father's lap and listen to all this. And so I decided when I grew up, I would be a professional discusser. 
that's what I thought they did, that they just discussed <laughs> passionately. <laughs> so, and then pretty soon I got very interested in politics myself, very soon. Then we moved to the United States, to New York. My father worked for the editorial page of the New York Herald Tribune by then and worked out of the UN. That was where his office was. And he went to Cuba. And I remember we had a Cuban-American doctor, a pediatrician. And at the time, my parents, who had lived in the Soviet Union, were not too thrilled about communism, as you can well imagine. So I used to say terrible things about Fidel Castro, and I had strong opinions already about communism before I was 10. But I think for as soon as I could remember, I started writing stories. I liked writing. I loved literature. But I think that I wanted to be a journalist since ever, since I was a child. I once thought briefly I might be a nurse, but it was just what I was going to do. There was never any question. By the time I was in high school, I knew I'd be a journalist. So that's what I tried to do. And I started writing and doing stories. I was on the school newspaper in Washington, D.C., and then I got away. When I finished high school, I went back to Chile. And when I say back to Chile, Chile was always a reference point for me. By the time that had happened, even though it wasn't my intention, in Chile, the world's first ever Marxist president had been elected, Salvador Allende. And it was certainly a very newsworthy country at the time. And I got myself into the University of Chile School of Journalism, much to my parents' horror. And I said, I'm leaving. <laughs> <laughs> Even though I had been accepted at a number of U.S. universities, I wanted to go to Chile because I liked Chile. My grandparents, my aunts and uncles, my cousins, we had an extended, important and influential family in Chile that I didn't really have in the U.S. And we used to go back and forth to Chile since I was a child as well. So for some reason, I didn't feel as much at home in the U.S. and I wanted to try that out. And when I got there, of course, I found myself in the middle of this revolution that uh, had grabbed the world's attention. At school, everything was about politics. I don't think I remember learning too much about journalism, but more doing it and getting involved. And of course, like every young person, you believe in the, not so much in the revolution, but in social change. And so I got knee deep in all that. And uh, even though you were very anti-communist growing up? Yeah, wouldn't you know? <laughs> I did. <laughs> I, 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 I was anti-communist, but then I saw it through a different light. My mother was very progressive, and so was my father. They were socially very progressive, but they didn't like communism. So I began seeing also what was going on in Chile through that light as well. And the Chilean Communist Party and the Chilean government at the time did not go for picking up people, torturing them and throwing them into gulags. There was pretty much free press at the time. It was a democratically elected government, which is quite different than what had happened in the Soviet Union, as we all know. And what it stood for in general, looking back, there were a lot of things that I now would say were wrong. But generally what it stood for, social change, equality in a country where there was so much poverty and so much of the opposite in terms of social equality, I think we all believed in it, or most of us, especially young people, believed in what was going on. Some of it was too radical. And historically, if you look back, probably the Socialist Party that Salvador Allende belonged to was far more radical than the Chilean Communist Party. <laughs> so it was, mm. they wanted to like expropriate everybody, everything. They had gone way beyond the social contract that meant that you had to respect the different institutions of the country. And mm -hmm. Salvador Allende didn't have the majority in the Congress. The judiciary was also against him, and then eventually the army, as we all know. And that ended up in a very, very bloody, very tragic military coup. 
which I found to be the biggest tragedy of my life up to that point. I found it was terrible. Lots of my friends were killed. Thousands of people were tortured and disappeared. I think everybody more or less knows the story, but it was horrifying, horrifying. And I had to go into the hiding for a while, too. Were you still a student or had you graduated at that point? I was a student, but I was a student at the School of Journalism, which was considered a hotbed of radical thought. It was the School of Journalism, Socialism, Political Science. They were all in that particular campus was kind of considered very radical. Not that everybody was, but if you're not in favor of social change when you're 20, then you never will be, as they say. So uh, people were persecuted. I didn't have a Chilean ID card at the time, and my visa had expired. So I was a hot candidate for getting arrested and being disappeared and killed. We've all seen the movie about the Americans who Mm -hmm. were killed, missing. So just like in Missing, what I did was I quickly got out my Chilean ID card, which luckily I was allowed to get because my mother had inscribed me in the public registry when I was born. So as a half Chilean, I had a right to be a Chilean. So I organized or I fixed my legal status as fast as I could. But in the meantime, I was in hiding because I was a supposedly undocumented foreigner there. And I had to stay in friends' houses. And it was pretty scary. The person I was living with at that time was arrested. The apartment I lived in was raided by the army. They took everything. And they were looking for us because the neighbors next to our apartment were from the Cuban embassy, just by luck. And they, they raided our apartment, too, because they knew that we had spoken to each other sometimes. So, But you managed to dodge it. You weren't there when they raided it. I wasn't, but the person I was living with, my partner, he was. And so he was dragged off and beaten up and put it. Luckily, it was in the first day of the coup. So the person in charge of the police station let him out. A lot of people who the army was eventually looking for later got away and people that they never were looking for got killed. So it was all haphazard at the time. Then they became far more sophisticated. Was it more dangerous also having a Chilean ID? Because, I mean, in a lot of countries, the worst that would happen to a foreigners, they would be expelled. Yeah, no, it wasn't like that. Uh, Pinochet was, it had nothing to do with your nationality. Being an American did not save you from anything. And if you were an American whose visa had expired and you were cavorting with all these leftists, as everybody knew we were, at the uh, School of Journalism, which was one of the first places they raided, then that just made you a bigger target. Some of my Chilean family was very conservative and they sort of tried to come to my rescue. But yes, at least having a Chilean ID, I was legally allowed to do what I was doing or be where I was. Because everywhere you went, they would ask for your ID. You couldn't walk out the door. There was a curfew Mm -hmm. from very early. There were curfews for Chile for years and years. There's a curfew now. This whole thing has been very bizarre, going back to having a curfew in the army on the streets now with the pandemic. But back to back then, if you crossed the street and it was past curfew, in 30 seconds, you could have 10 soldiers surrounding you, pointing their guns at you and hauling you away. So how long did you hide for and what happened next? Were you able to finish college or not? No, no, no. They closed down the universities, especially my faculty. That was closed down for a long, long time. I didn't have much money. I got a job, but I didn't hide that long. As soon as I got my Chilean document, I was able to go back to the apartment where I had lived. And then I got a job at the Australian embassy as an assistant because I was bilingual. The Australian government sent in a dozen or more immigration officers to take people to Australia, especially people who were being politically persecuted. 
Mm-hmm. I wasn't being politically persecuted, or at least I didn't feel I was. But anyway, long story short, there was no sign of when they would ever open up the university. They said, you can go to Australia as a migrant. All you have to do is stay for two years. You can go to the university for free. And all these things that they gave to migrants at the time who were going to Australia, you go to a migrant hostel. I went mm-hmm. to the South Coochie migrant. And so I went, I migrated for two years. I thought, well, you know, while this thing boils over, but in two more years, Pinochet will be out of power and I can go back to Chile. So I thought, well, that was, things did not turn out that way. So I went to Australia, went to the University of New South Wales. I enrolled after a year or less than a year. I got a job first at a bank, enrolled at the university, got a scholarship and started studying again. Also journalism? Well, in Australia then, you didn't study journalism, as in the U.S. You studied things like liberal arts, which included something like journalism, but it was basically history, political science. I majored in political science and all Mm. sorts of things, so that by the time you came out, you were a well-rounded person. And then I started practicing journalism, but it took me a while to get a job. And so uh, where did you get your first job as a journalist? I got my first job at a television network called the O28 News Station. It belonged to the Special Broadcasting Service. It was the world's first ever multicultural television station, and it had every movie, every program that you can imagine from all over the world subtitled, and then it had a half-an-hour newscast every night that brought you news from everywhere. It was really an amazing, amazing station. And Australia had and has a very, very diverse multicultural population from Greece, from Lebanon, from Asia, everywhere you can imagine. And so they would go the world over and buy all these programs. And I started as an editor of subtitles and then crawled my way into the newsroom, begged my way into the newsroom. Back then, there weren't any women doing that. It was only men. The only woman was the secretary who was, of course, having an affair with the news director. So it was that sort of, a, of an ambiance. It was pretty <laughs> female chauvinist in the newsrooms all over. But I managed to get in, and then that's how I got my start. And then I went on a holiday to Nicaragua. We, by then, we were covering the civil wars in Central America. Everybody was passionate about what was happening in Central America. It was like what the Middle East has become in the last decade or more, the last 20 years. But At the time, the wars were taking place in Central America. The United States was involved. The Soviet Union was involved. Cuba was involved. The whole Cold War epicenter was centered into this tiny part of Latin America between South and North. And it was fascinating. And I went to Nicaragua. You said you went there on vacation? I went on a holiday to do a documentary. Well, actually, I went on a holiday. I just went to see it. How did I do that? No, I decided I would take vacation and I would ask my network to pay for a cameraman so I could do a short documentary, a program on what was happening in Nicaragua. And that's what I did. My very first piece of on-camera television was a half an hour documentary. So I got there and went and started searching for the Contras and the Compas, the Sandinistas. By then, the United States was funding the Contra revolutionaries, better known as Contras. And I was completely hooked. I said, that's it. I went back to Australia, did the story. It went well. And I said, I'm leaving. I'm going to spec as a journalist, as a freelancer in Central America, and I'll be based in Nicaragua. Most of my colleagues from U.S. and European networks were based in Salvador, El Salvador. 
There were only a few in Nicaragua. They would go back and forth. And I did it the other way around. I was based in Nicaragua, and then I would go to El Salvador, to Honduras, to Guatemala, to all the other countries that were also in turmoil at the time. And it was all connected. It's a very, very small part of the world. Mm -hmm. And had you always gravitated towards television news, or was it just happenstance that that's where you got your first job, was at SBC and that kind of SBS. in the world of television? SBS. Well, yeah, no, I, on the contrary, I wanted to be a newspaper journalist, and I did. I When I went to Central America, I wrote for the Sydney Morning Herald. I worked for an Australian radio program, 2GB, or chain, 2GB, and then I would spec also for another TV station, Channel 7 Australia, for television. I had no particular love for television, in fact... Probably it was like what I least liked at the time, but it was just how I ended up working. It's where I found a job and it became a bigger and bigger part of what I did, although I loved doing radio. I adored doing the radio. Then one day CNN offered me a job. I was like sitting around minding my own business, having a sandwich at one of the few places you could eat something in Managua. And Eason Jordan from CNN came up to me and basically offered me the job as their freelance correspondent in Central America because Peter Arnett, who used to go dip in and out of Central America, he was their war correspondent, the Pulitzer Prize winning. Uh, you might remember or not who he is, but he was a New Zealander who worked for CNN. I would occasionally be his freelance producer. I'd, I'd produce for the BBC, for German TV, occasionally for CNN, which I barely knew what it was. But it turns out that CNN was running my stories from the Australian television network because they had an agreement, a sharing agreement with Channel 7 Australia. So they started running my stories and they, apparently they liked them. So instead of sending Peter Arnett all the time, they decided to hire me and I wasn't too happy about it. I thought, meh, I don't think so, I said. I remember, I said, look, you know, <laughs> I, not <laughs> I noticed that all these American television networks, all they do is write stories. They send their correspondents in. They never leave the hotel. They're always by the pool. And they send the locals out to get the footage, often in the line of fire. And then they come and write the script that was already written in New York before they even left the United States. And they're just basically gathering the elements for something that they've already pre-written. And it worked a lot like that. You know, they already had their concept of what was going on. And we, or I, worked in a very different way. And certainly I had no censorship at all when I worked with Australian television. I would go out and look and see, and what I found is what I did. I would do the reporting first and then figure out how it worked how it fit in. So I said, if as long as the story starts here and goes from the south up to the north and not the other way around, I'll work for you. And he said, fine. And that's how it was. Hmm. Were you often going into the line of fire, into the war zone to shoot footage? Or yeah, what was the reporting that's like? That's what you do. <laughs> not just me. That's what we did. I mean, I didn't consider myself or, or label myself a war correspondent. But let's be honest, if you're living in a country that's at war, where everything around you is, is war and where everybody's dressed in olive green, <laughs> except for the capital, as soon as you leave the comfort of the capital, there's going to be conflict. That's a conflict zone. And you're looking for the story. So, yeah, you do go into places that are dangerous. It's quite extraordinary. And I'm not just talking about myself, but most of us were young and we didn't know what the hell we were doing. And there were a lot of, especially the people in television, I mean, a lot of cameramen particularly were killed, including some of mine. And I remember going to my first 
battle in El Salvador with Susan Marcellus, a very, very famous American photographer who had much more experience covering wars because she covered the insurrection, Sandinista insurrection against the Somoza dictatorship, and another cameraman, a Mexican. And I just followed them around. I don't know where we were going. We were just kind of looking around to see what was happening. And suddenly there was a battle and they rushed up onto the mountain hill and I just followed them. I had no idea what I was doing. And I always say I survived a lot of things because God is great. It wasn't my time <laughs> because I, I was raking all the rules about not getting in the middle of crossfire and doing all these things. You'd learn as you go along. There was none of this hardship or hazardous training that we do now. By the time I took my first hazardous training as a journalist course, I had already done all that stuff (laughs) (laughs) for years. (laughs) So we were all just too gung-ho. We we thought we were immortal. I think that's what makes people do that. The adrenaline just makes you do things that when you think about it is totally ridiculous or not, not ridiculous, certainly not wise. Would one side or the other, the Contras or the government, take you along with them sometimes? Or was was it just you kind of had to get into the area and figure it out on your own? Like, were either the sides ever cooperative? Yeah, sometimes. Yes, sometimes. More in El Salvador, you could kind of go in with it. But I can't remember that we very often would go with the army or with the Contras or with with the rebels in the case of El Salvador. But we would sometimes. You have to be either on one side or the other, because if you're in the middle, it's dangerous. But we didn't set it up, and they didn't always want journalists with them. There was a, certainly an element of improvising a lot. And how long were you there in Nicaragua? I was in Central America for five years. I covered Nicaragua, Salvador, went sometimes to Guatemala and Honduras, but then also Panama came into it. And in the middle of all this, the Panamanian leader, the military leader, Manuel Antonio Noriega was in charge, and that became another new hotspot. And I fell in love with a Panamanian in the middle of all this. So I ended up living in Panama for a year during that uprising, and then I was expelled from Panama, went back to Nicaragua. And eventually the peace talks began in Central America, and that cooled down quite a bit. And I went back to Chile, which is what I wanted. My idea from the beginning, and I should have mentioned this earlier, my whole idea was to go back to Chile. I was going to go back, but I needed to have a job. So the way to have a job was to become a foreign correspondent and work for somebody who would pay me, because back in Chile, A, there was a dictatorship, so there was practically no media, no free media. And the few media outlets of people who were resisting, if you like, the dictatorship were taken by journalists who had never left. So I had no pretension of going in and getting a job in those very, very few newspapers or radio stations that were democratic, if you like. So I wanted to be a journalist, and I was going to come back under the cover of a newspaper, a radio station, or in this case, CNN. And uh, so that's what I was doing. I was inching my way back to Chile, and I was covering Chile occasionally. I would go back to Chile. I would sometimes go to Colombia. I wasn't just covering Central America those five years for CNN. By then, I was their first full-time Latin American correspondent. But then I, I said to them one day, I'm going back to Chile. <laughs> they said, what? <laughs> I said, I'm sorry. I really want to go back to Chile. Everything is changing now. There's just been a plebiscite, a referendum, and the election is going to take place. Pinochet is going to be out. South America is becoming much more important, and that's where I want to live, and I'll freelance for you. And lo and behold, the network said, no, you know what? You can go to Chile and open up a network. You can be a correspondent for South America based out of Chile. So I was over the moon, and that's what I did. I went back to Chile and I covered the drug wars in Colombia. I covered the transition in Chile. 
the economic turmoil in Argentina after the end of the military junta there, the shining path guerrilla warfare in Peru. Curiously and luckily enough, South America became much more the news story than Central America that, as I say, had died down significantly by the time the peace deals were signed. And is that in Chile when you went back this time was when you first crossed paths with Anthony Bodle? No, I had been going back a lot. As I said, I was covering all of Latin America. So I was going back when Pinochet was still there. I was there the day that they tried to murder him. I was there for a lot of the biggest stories that were taking place in Chile when the Pope arrived. But I wasn't living full time in Chile, but when I would go, I'd stay for quite some time. And it was scary. I have to say, of all the, I was covering wars here, there, everywhere, but there was nothing more frightening for me than going to Chile, which I wanted to desperately, but at the same time, I, I never felt so vulnerable as in Chile, because I knew or thought that if they decided they want to grab me and do something, I was I was toast. <laughs> and, and it was scary. And I know that Anthony mentioned it in, when you interviewed him, how they would go after the foreign press. I mean, it didn't matter if you were a foreign journalist or a Chilean journalist. By this time, Pinochet was not getting along well with the U.S. government at all. So he had certainly no vested interest in keeping Washington happy anymore, if he had ever had any vested interest. And there was an arms embargo against Pinochet, a lot of pressure because of the human rights violations. Never enough to pull him out, but there was. And we were doing a lot of dangerous work there, journalists. We were talking to the people who were trying to overthrow the government. We were talking to the people who would protest against the government. People would be shot on the streets. It was very interesting, but scary. I think it went back to my original, how I had left. I had felt when I left, I knew that people could be killed in a heartbeat. And even if maybe it was less dangerous for me than I thought, I always felt frightened that somebody could come in in the middle of the night and just take me away. Right. Did it get any better after the plebiscite? Yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. By then it was, you know, the whole world was watching. And even though the night that Pinochet lost the plebiscite, I did a story called Pinochet's Revenge because the army went out onto the streets and literally hunted down the press, the media, but particularly the foreign media. I mean, you had your press credential and you say, periodista, periodista, and they would go after you and break your skull. There were dozens and dozens of cameramen and other journalists in the hospital that night, including my cameraman. I was picked up by a water cannon blast and hurled across the park. And luckily I landed in grass, but they were going after everyone. And Anthony was the president. Anthony Bodle, our British colleague who worked at the time for WTN, was the president of Foreign Correspondents Association. And so he presented an official complaint and we all did stories about what had happened to us. So it just made it worse for Pinochet because the whole world saw what they had done to us. And it was very graphic. I mean, blood streaming down everybody's faces and people hauled away to the hospital. It was pretty ugly. But after that, we were allowed to do our job. But there was a lot of censorship. Every time you sent a story out of Chile, and this lasted for a long time, till after Pinochet left, you had to send it to the censor's office first. They had to approve it. Oh, wow. Unless you got the tapes out remotely. You know, if you had to, for example, ship the tape out on a plane, they had to see it first. <laughs> and then, uh, so we were always finding imaginative ways to get around the censors, which we would, and then they'd be furious about the story. 
and one of them was sending it via satellite, which was very expensive. Nowadays, I mean, the technology has changed so dramatically. We didn't have cell phones in those days. We didn't have internet in those days. None of that stuff existed, remember, from 1990 onward. But before that, absolutely none of that. So it was difficult. You would get there, you would put your little set into the machine, press go, and by the time they realized that what you were saying in English and showing wasn't what they wanted, it was out. It was too late. But it cost thousands of dollars to do that. Wow. It was another world. So how long were you in Chile for that time? Well, so then I decided, that's it, I'm coming home. I got back. As I said, right after the plebiscite, I moved back and covered the elections, had my first daughter. I was here for four years. But then my husband, the Panamanian, lost his job and things weren't going well. And CNN offered me a job in Mexico. And I really didn't want to go. I really didn't want to go. But, you know, it just seemed like, okay, fine, I'll do it. Because my husband had a much better chance in Mexico. He had worked for a Mexican television network and just took the job. And it was one of those things that kind of broke my heart. But it was like, here I was leaving Chile again. So I left and I went to Mexico. And it just seemed like, uh, I remember once the president, whose name I won't mention, saying, please don't come to my country because every time you go somewhere, everything falls apart. (laughs) (laughs) Please don't come and live here, he said. And I went to Mexico and everything started happening. The Zapatista rebellion, The interesting part was NAFTA, the first NAFTA agreement. That was already in the works. But then came the Zapatista rebellion, the assassination of the presidential candidate, the collapse of the economy, which had repercussions all over the world, the tequila bomb, as it was called. It was sort of like the the subprime crisis, but it started in Mexico at that point. And more and more and more things. So I was pregnant. I was covering the war with the Zapatistas, the uprising, and that was fascinating. I was very, very, very busy, but I really wanted to go back to Chile. I just kept wanting to come back to Chile all the time. And as I was about to, I remember asking Ted Turner, I said, look, Ted, I really want to go back to South America. You know, this is enough. It had been three and a half years in Mexico. I couldn't breathe. I hated the pollution. I hated the traffic. I was just like exhausted. (laughs) By the way, I forgot to mention, I'd been covering Cuba a lot especially from Mexico. It was very nearby. Just flying in and out. Yeah, flying in and out. I would go for like a week or two weeks. And and every U.S. network and other forms of media, newspapers as well, was trying to get the Cuban government to allow them to open a bureau in Havana. And it took years of negotiations. And I just went along with it. I participated in some of the talks, but never thinking that I would be the one to go. But suddenly Castro said, okay, we're going to give CNN the opportunity to be the first to open a bureau. I think Fidel thought that this was a great idea because he was friends with Ted Turner, the owner of CNN, and he must have imagined that that would mean that he would have more leverage and that we would be kinder and softer in our coverage (laughs) of Cuba. And he really, really never understood that that's not how things work. But in any case, it happened, and I was offered the job. And it was just such an exciting opportunity. So I had to decide whether to go south or to the Caribbean. And I had by then gotten a job, believe it or not, at the United Nations in Chile. I had applied for the job. I hadn't said anything to CNN, but I had gotten the job at CEPAL or ECLAC, at their PR public relations person. A boring job compared to what I had been doing, but at least it would bring me to Chile. 
And then when the Cuba thing happened, I just couldn't go through with it. I couldn't. Every journalistic gene in my body just went haywire. And I took the job and, and went to Cuba, which I adored. I loved Cuba. It was so interesting. I felt like Mata Hari going there. And I went there with I went there with my two little children and my then husband. That didn't last long, but the husband part. But the job was fascinating. I was, lived in Cuba for nine years and had a million and one adventures. I still covered up all the big stories in Latin America because I continued to be the Latin America correspondent. But Cuba was like the new cherry on the cake, I guess, in Latin America for CNN because it was the only one to have an office there. And so nine years, that's a long time. It's a um, long time. How much interactions did you have with Fidel Castro? Did you get a chance to interview him? A lot. And a lot of interactions with Fidel. Many, many, many. Countless. <laughs> it's a small Would he do sit-down interviews? Oh, I did a sit-down interview with him, yes. For which he didn't speak to me after that for a year. But anyway. <laughs> uh, <laughs> in fact, you can see a little piece of that interview in a movie that just came out. <laughs> Really? What's, yeah. what's the movie? It's very funny. It's called The Wasp Network. It's about the Cuban spies. Huh, interesting. So Penelope Cruz. And, uh, anyway, it's, it's, yeah, it's out there. You can see it on Netflix. I'm not trying to keep, put a lot of propaganda in the movie. I didn't like it too much. But it, it ends with the interview I do with Fidel. With, there's one person that plays me as an, an actress, does a little piece where it's supposed to be me, but doesn't say my name. But at the very end, it's the actual Fidel and the actual me where he confesses that, yes, they are spies for the Cuban government. But anyway, I interviewed him. That was a very long interview. We did it in Portugal, actually. I interviewed him a lot uh, in different areas, different times. They would invite the foreign press to cover certain events that were taking place. And sometimes he would be furious. Sometimes he looked for me specifically because he wanted to talk to CNN. He wanted to talk to me. We had our uh, conflicts, you could say, at times. I mean, he would be annoyed, angry, furious, depending on the situation. Other times he'd be quite happy with the coverage. And that would make me very unpopular in Miami. I was considered a, uh, an agent of the Cuban government or sold out to Cuban communism. I certainly never made both sides happy, that I can tell you. And he's famous for being very, very long-winded. I mean, was oh. it hard to wrang wrangle him in interviews? Like, did you... Absolutely. You know... It was hard to shut him up. Oh, boy. He was really hard. That interview, the one where I got that little piece that I really wanted about the spies... In two hours, I got to ask four or five questions. Wow. And he was furious because we didn't run the whole two hours, and it was only a half an hour show. <laughs> and I couldn't, and he was very angry about that. But he was also angry because then I later complained, and that made headlines in some of the news agencies. When I complained, when I was invited to some journalistic event in Washington, I was saying that it, when asked about how easy or difficult it was to work in Cuba, one of the big problems was that you had very little access to high-level sources because the only one who could speak was Fidel in many cases. So ministers and lower-ranking officials wouldn't talk to you. And when I said that, he had just given me the interview. So it was like, how dare she say that? I've just given her an interview and you don't have access to high-ranking officials? What do you mean? <laughs> I thought that that was just outrageous. And also he was very pissed off that I hadn't aired the whole two hours and the part that was most interesting to him, but that wasn't what was most interesting to us. But he knew I would be asking about the spies. That was clearly the headline that went around the world. 
but they recognized And for people who are unfamiliar, what was the situation with With the the spies? spies. Ah, yes, yes. Well, everybody remembers, I'm sure, the Alian Gonzalez saga, the little boy who, the Ah, rafter. Well, this became the second most important cause celeb in Cuba. Ten Cuban spies were discovered and arrested in Miami as part of what the U.S. Justice Department called the WASP network. I don't know if they had called it that or whether the Cubans had called it the WASP network first, but these spies had been there for years and years and years and years. And what they had done was infiltrate the anti-Castro groups based out of Miami, including Brothers to the Rescue, which would fly airplanes in and out of Cuba, around Cuba, and in the seas in between in the Florida Straits, picking up rafters. And they would sometimes throw pamphlets over Havana and therefore violating Cuban airspace. And they would do this in very small little airplanes, tiny planes. There's only two or three people abroad. And others were trying and did manage to plant bombs in Cuba to try to scare off the tourism industry of Cuba, which was the only industry that was getting anywhere, that it was going to be the lifeline of the government or of the country. They were investing a lot of money in hotels and wanted to bring massive amounts of tourism from all countries. And you can imagine that if you're in a hotel and a bomb goes off, you're not going to go back to Cuba. So that was happening as well. There were all sorts of things. I was living there when that happened, not when the bombs went off. But before that, the Brothers to the Rescue planes were shot down by Cuban Russian MiG planes. They were piloted by Cuban pilots. And this really almost led to a U.S. invasion. It was under the Clinton administration. But they didn't do that, but they imposed very, very stringent new sanctions on Cuba. They passed the Helms-Burton Act. They did a whole series of things. But by this time, the Americans knew that there were spies in the U.S., And so they eventually, months later, or maybe a year later, they broke up the spy network and arrested them. Five of them made a deal with the U.S. government, but the other five refused to. And in fact, for a long time, they refused to even acknowledge that they were spies. And these became known as the Cinco Héroes, the five heroes, when eventually they were put into obviously into like super, super isolation cells, interrogated. I don't think they were tortured physically, but they were under extreme pressure to confess that they worked for the Cuban government, which they didn't. And they figured that just like in Mission Impossible, that was going to be the end. (laughs) You know how in Mission Impossible they say, if anybody discovers your work, we will disavow any knowledge of your actions. And then the tape blows up. (laughs) Well, that's exactly what happened to what they believed would be their fate, that Cuba would never recognize their existence. But in the interview, Fidel said, when I asked him, what about these spies? And to make a long story short, he said, yes, it's true. We have these heroes that are Cuban, and we sent them there because we're not spying on the American government. We have infiltrated the anti-Castro groups that are planting bombs in our country that are trying to destroy us, et cetera, et cetera. And since the U.S. government would do nothing about it, we had to take action. But this is not classical spying. This is spying on groups that should be illegal. So that's what he said. And when that happened, the Cuban Five, as they became known, were acknowledged. And there was a campaign that went on for years and years between the United States and Cuba to try to free them. Of course, they weren't freed. The head of the group, Gerardo Hernandez, was given two life sentences. He was even accused of having been responsible for the downing of those two planes where five Cuban Americans died. And so he was eventually freed as part of the deal made between the U.S. government under Obama and Raul Castro, 
to renew diplomatic relations. And the first thing that the Cubans demanded was the release of the remaining Cuban five who spent 16 years in prison. So I got to know them all. That's a hell of a story, yeah. It's an amazing story. It's much more interesting than that even. Gerardo, the head of the group, who was the one who told me, or I found out later, he he agreed to give me an interview when he was released. And I did a fantastic story for Al Jazeera with him. It turns out that he had been given these two life sentences, and he was married to a woman who became Cuba's Penelope, the woman who could never get married to anybody else. She had to sit there and wait and wait. A very beautiful woman, Adriana, who, according to the U.S., was also a Cuban intelligence officer. So they never allowed her to go to the United States to see him in prison, unlike the others. They were never able to see each other. She eventually froze her eggs so that in case she ever was able to have a child when it was too late for her to conceive, they might be able to have children because they had always dreamed of having children. But then the years went on and the years went on and the years went on and she never got married and we never knew of her ever having a boyfriend or doing anything else. She could never see Gerardo. Gerardo, in the meantime, had refused to work or to cooperate with the U.S. government, but he when he was in isolation, received a little piece of paper under his cell, and somebody yelled out, hey, Cubano, your government has finally recognized you. And that was the story in the the Miami Herald about the interview that I did with Fidel, in which he recognizes that they exist. And so he said later, I knew at that point that sooner or later they would get me out. So that was the reason why he gave me the interview eventually. But In the meantime, the years went by, the years went by, and secret negotiations began between Obama and Castro. And they, as a sign of good faith and goodwill, the United States allowed Gerardo's sperm to be taken, to be flown from California, where he was in a high security prison, to Panama, where Adriana, the wife, went to be artificially inseminated. And so so she got pregnant. (laughs) She got pregnant without ever being with her husband. (laughs) And but nobody knew this was top secret. So when he arrived, when he was finally arrived on the day that simultaneously and this happened exactly at the same time, Raul Castro and Barack Obama announced to the world that they've started the movement to renew diplomatic ties and to release the remaining Cuban spies in exchange for some American who had also been imprisoned in Cuba, who wasn't really a spy, but never mind, they had him anyway, somebody to bargain. They released two people in Cuba and the three Cubans, and they arrived back in Havana, and they get off the plane, and there's a hugely pregnant woman at the bottom of the plane to receive Gerardo, and everybody's watching this in shock, including me, saying, what happened? He must have allowed her to have another partner. But then they're suddenly they're hugging and kissing. And nobody knew what had happened. And then it finally came out that she had the baby two weeks after he arrived. And this was the baby and the secret of negotiations and flying back and forth of sperms and so forth to allow for the negotiations between Cuba and the United States to move forward. I thought that was a very interesting story, which I adored doing. Yeah, wow. So you talked about that when yeah, we did. he got a jail, but the interview with him lined up. Well, I did the story when it happened, and then I did a half an hour interview with him. I pushed and pushed and begged to be able to actually go further into what it had been like for him. And the whole idea of somebody being in prison 16 years or two life sentences to defend the Cuban government, you know, everything he'd given up. I mean, you have to have a very special mindset because he could have made a deal. He could have made a deal. He would have been released. 
I never ever thought they were, they were, he would be released. I just didn't think that was ever going to happen. And uh, so it was really quite a shock for people who had been following the story. Anyway, that was one of my favorite stories. So you were in Cuba for nine years. And I do get the sense when you mentioned getting kicked out of countries that Panama was the first one you were kicked out of, but it might not have been the last. Um, I know Anthony, uh, <laughs> Anthony said he was ultimately, they declined to renew his visa, so he had to leave Cuba. What was the situation when you left and where did you go? I probably would have been in the same situation, but they, they were really quite anxious to get rid of me. I could tell you that by the end. They had started getting annoyed, as they themselves recognized. But I decided to leave, and everybody was shocked. They said, how can you leave Cuba? Fidel hasn't died yet. You're there. You're there to be there when the big story hits. And I said, I didn't come to Cuba to cover the death of Fidel. I came to Cuba to cover Cuba. And after nine years, my kids were growing up, and I have to say, I was beginning to take what was going on there personally. And then that, if it doesn't cloud your judgment, it certainly affects you more emotionally than what it should. And so I was finding it more difficult not to be angry when I covered what was going on, because there were things happening there that go against what I believe in, human rights, freedom of expression, the whole shebang, the same sort of thing that made my parents not be too thrilled about the Soviet Union back in their day. And my children were growing up in that country at the same time, living in a bubble where they couldn't move around like ordinary people. They couldn't hang out with normal Cubans too much because we were always being spied on, followed, listened to. It's a long, long story and you don't have time to hear it. But, you know, this idea that everywhere, that even when I went to the toilet, there was a microphone in there, you know, just it finally got to me. I just couldn't take it anymore. And I thought my kids need to be able to live somewhere where they learn to get on a bus and do their own thing and not be treated so specially, you know, because they were like privileges. And at the same time, they lived in a sort of a ghetto. I had married by then a Cuban. And so I knew how the Cubans were living. I had a lot of access to how ordinary Cubans lived and their difficulties because I would go back and forth from our high class, if you like, neighborhood or our more privileged neighborhood where the foreigners can live to the real world out there. But my children mm -hmm. didn't. And so I needed them to live in the real world. So I thought, OK, this is enough. And CNN had promised to move me. I said, look, you know, this has been great, but I need a change. After nine years, this is long enough, or eight years then. And they said, okay, fine. But after six months, I went back and I said, well, where am I going? And they said, well, you know, I, we understand, but we really want you to stay longer and you can travel more. And I, I was so angry that I picked up the phone and I answered a call that I had been receiving from Al Jazeera that had been calling me to offer me a job. And some of my CNN colleagues had already moved over to Al Jazeera, but I hadn't even answered the phone call because I wasn't interested until that happened. And then I said, well, yes, hi, what would you like? <laughs> and then they offered me a job and we could go to Argentina. Of course, I wanted to go to Chile, but Argentina was like the closest place next door. And so that's why I left Cuba. But when I did leave... In the final meeting between the new head of CNN, the new uh, executive vice president, and the Cuban authorities and me, the person from the foreign ministry said, well, we're very glad you're leaving, <laughs> he said to me. It's like a thing you're getting rid of her. And then I discovered that they had tried to get me expelled a couple of times before, you know, during some of these moments when Fidel would get very angry. But the anger would pass, and then I would eventually be able to stay. But after Castro, Fidel Castro, got out, things became much more difficult for foreign correspondents under Raul Castro. Not so much because of Raul Castro himself, but because the new management was far less tolerant. 
of anything coming out and was much more determined to control everything that came out. The journalists started to not be invited anymore to news conferences, weren't invited to uh, talk to or meet with the president or the acting president by then, Raul Castro. They were marginalized and people who wrote anything that annoyed them would no longer have their visas renewed. And I wasn't allowed back into Cuba for another eight years. Oh, wow. I tried and they would not let me go back. They would not let me go back. They were furious. They didn't want people who knew the place, who could sort of just get around on their own. They were angry. They hadn't been happy with me by the time I left, and they weren't going to have a second shot at that. But eventually they capitulated, how should I say, or they warmed up to the idea of being a little more open. And I've been able to go back a lot. And, you know, I keep working the same way I always did. I personally have, you know, when I've run into Raul Castro, I can interview him. Not a sit-down interview, though. That's something I would love to have had or love mm-hmm. to have still. He's still around, so it's still a possibility. But, you know, he doesn't give that kind of interview except for people who are, shall we say, guaranteed to make it absolutely pro-Cuba. Right. Not quite the same big personality that Fidel was also. Um, um, he has a personality. He has an interesting personality. I think he's been underrated. Raul <laughs> Castro oh, a lot. Huh. Misunderstood <laughs> and underrated, <laughs> I would say. <laughs> But certainly he doesn't have that sort of oh, charisma, the leader of the revolution. He doesn't have the temper of Fidel that he had. But, you know, by the time that Fidel stepped down, he was a lot older. You know, he had lost some of the pizzazz, but he still had the mystique around him. Right. So you moved to Argentina with Al Jazeera and are there for a bit and then moved to Chile. And does that catch us up to present? Yeah, that when catches there are other up steps? to present. Yes, I moved to Argentina with my kids. It wasn't a very easy change. My kids were teenagers. By then I had separated. So it was difficult on a personal level. And not that much was happening in Argentina. It had been very newsworthy. And then suddenly it wasn't anymore. So I found myself living on an airplane, traveling all the time with Al Jazeera, whose pocketbook was curiously enough, larger than CNN's in terms of covering international news and who had and has a far larger appetite for news from Latin America than any of the English language television networks than the competition. So cover everything, absolutely everything in Latin America. So it's been thrilling on that score to to cover so much, but it's also been, you know, on a personal level, it's been difficult because of all the travel. And working for Al Jazeera, I mean, the output, they obviously have an English language channel. Does your stuff get used on both, you know, Arabic language and English? Or how does that all work? Not much. Not the Arabic. Occasionally, they ask me to do live shots for them, for the Arabic station. Something really important that they don't have the Arabic correspondent isn't there. You know, they're far more centered on the Middle East, let's face it. But they're also interested in Latin America. But sometimes they don't have a correspondent, so they ask me to do a live shot and they'll have a translator. More or less, that's what they do. Our stories, the newscasts are very different. I don't know how much you know about Al Jazeera, but it's sort of like CNN Spanish versus CNN English. You'll see that the rundown is very, very centered on CNN Spanish on Latin America. And I would say Al Jazeera Arabic is far more Arab world centric as well, which isn't logical because it's got an Arabic uh, audience, while Al Jazeera English has a worldwide audience. Right. Who do you think of as your viewer? Just because I know plenty about Al Jazeera, but I mean, I won't say I've watched a ton of it. Our viewers are anybody who speaks English. 
that is around the world, especially in Europe. You see lots and lots of people watch Al Jazeera English in Europe. It doesn't matter where they come from. They don't have to be necessarily Brits. But there's a wide viewership in uh, Europe, as I say, in Asia, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, Africa. A lot of people watch it in Africa. In the United States, they watch it online. But there was an attempt to have a Al Jazeera America station, which was kind of a disaster. But anyway, it didn't work for a large number of reasons, but mainly because the content was, Al Jazeera was obliged to make, I think, something like 65% of the content U.S. news. And so people who didn't want to watch Al Jazeera to see what was happening in the U.S., they want to watch it to see everything else that Al Jazeera English normally covers. They couldn't do that. So I'm not privy to how that agreement was reached or what U.S. laws came into play there, but it ended up not being worth its while. So we went back to having Al Jazeera English as the network that people can see in the U.S., you can see it in Brazil, you can see it in Colombia, you can see it in Argentina, you can see it in Latin America, you know, all over. Cool. And then I think we'll move on to the section about stories. And I usually start with the story that got away. So is there any story that you always wanted to do or at one point wanted to do and for some reason just could never get the right sources, couldn't get the interview you needed? Does anything come to mind? Oh, you know, it's so it's incredible. You know, I think that there is something about journalists, our savior mechanism. <laughs> I know that there's so many of them, but I forget. <laughs> And, you know, my frustration, because you get so frustrated that, you know, there are things that you wish you had done and could have done, but then you do something else. And I do wish, I'm, I would really love, and I mentioned, I think, earlier that I would love to interview on a one-on-one Raul Castro, because I know Cuba so well. And I know things about him that I'm sure nobody else would ask. And it's just kind of, as I say, he's, I think, the misunderstood or less understood key player in this whole system of the last surviving communist regime in the Western Hemisphere. I mean, communist communists, I'm not saying left wing, I'm saying the system that they have. And I just think it would be fascinating to know him more before he, I mean, he's very old, so he won't be around forever. But I, that's that's been a frustration of mine. I've always wanted to interview him. I think I'm going to keep trying. But the other thing is, a lot of my colleagues have written books along the way, and I've always been so busy that I keep sort of saying, I'll do it later, I'll do it later. So that's something I want to do. I haven't done it enough. I haven't done enough documentaries, which is something I love to do long form. And so my frustrations are less with what I haven't done, but rather what I want to do and may not yet be able to do, you know, this is question that you ask yourself more and more, why am I doing this story? And I don't always have the ability to choose absolutely whether to do or not to do it according to the answer to that story. Why am I doing it? Is it worth it? As journalists, we don't always have the choice. I often do. I can't complain. But I think that more and more we have to ask ourselves, is this a story that's really worth doing? And then there's stories that I think are really worth doing and our editors don't believe in it. You know, they're much more human interest. They want more hard news. That, as a general line, I think is something that frustrates a lot of us, especially in television. You're just kind of beholden to whatever the breaking news is that's going on in the country you're in. Or the ones that you have to get on the plane to get to, but <laughs> true, just, which is ninety percent of the time, except for now where the borders are closed. But yes, it's not so much what I could have done, but what I want to do. Sure, yeah, and it's but, good to have things out there that they haven't gotten away. You you can still hopefully. keep after them. 
And then the next thing was if there was a story you're proud of that you could just tell us a little bit about what it's about and how you went about reporting it, you know, kind of start to finish. So I don't know if that's Haiti or if there's something else that comes to mind. Well, Haiti is this place where it's been the most dangerous place, believe it or not. But my experiences in Haiti are the ones that have brought me closest to being eliminated from this planet. It's just been at times of tremendous violence and upheaval. So in the midst of all that, I remember I went to an orphanage in Haiti at a time when there was no food because everything had been shut down because of the fighting that was going on. There was a group trying to overthrow the government. And people had nothing to eat. And the orphanage had run out of everything. And these children were in there. And I just watching them through the window and their big eyes that I remember starting the story, something like their eyes are as big as their, their stomachs are empty or something like that. And how these children, when they were starving, but they were so sweet and so kind. And a lone priest was taking care of all these little kids. They were full of lice. And he took me into the room where the food was kept with a lock. They had to have a padlock there because if the kids ever got in there. And there was like a sack of flour and one other thing. And one of the kids went in with us, managed to sort of shove his way in when we went into film and he was eating the raw flour on the floor with his fingers and it was mm-hmm. that, always that kind of thing and there was nobody or anything that could help them and you could see them starving to death in their huge stomachs anyway i did that story it was very very moving but shortly after because so many people saw it the help started pouring in and they were able to get food from ngos and just even people within haiti who just felt so sorry for them who had a little bit more than they did. When I went back, they had all become fat. <laughs> a lot of people had come <laughs> to actually adopt them. I'm, I'm really summarizing this, but to see those children broke my heart. Everything that has to do with children, of course, breaks your heart. And I remember going to another part of Haiti where I saw a child that had an eye infection and the pus was pouring out from his little eye. And mm. the, the mother had absolutely no possibility of buying just the simple tube of pomade, say something you put in the eye and immediately it goes away. And there were no pharmacies. I took him to the hospital. And when I I took him to the hospital, the doctor said, no, this is silly. It's because it's pointless. The families, we don't do anything about these things because nobody has any medicine to cure it. So you just have to let it go. And the hospital had nothing in it either. There was nothing they could do for the child. And finally, I combed the little town in the other. It was very far away from Port-au-Prince. And I found a pharmacy that had the medicine and I paid a fortune for it. He would never pay that much for that anywhere in the world. And I bought the the antibiotic cream for the child. Anyway, those sorts of little things that you do. It's sometimes it's the story. It's sometimes what you can do to help people while you're covering the story that makes your life worthwhile because you know you're making a difference. And I guess that's why we are journalists. And nobody knows if you bought or not the cream, but that child, I could see that he would stop suffering. And I bought enough so that he and his siblings, of course, who probably had also pus pouring out of their eyes, could also be treated. It's tragic. You know, there's nothing you can do to change the whole situation. But if you can touch or help one person, that's brilliant. On a bigger scale, I did a story in Cuba about how people were having their houses taken away from them and bulldozed. And I did this as a story that shocked Fidel Castro. It was a story about how the ministry, it wasn't even a ministry, it was like the sub-ministry for housing, which was completely corrupt, was taking houses that had not been legally built by people away from them, giving them to cronies or people who had given them money 
I bribed them, or simply bulldozing them down and building other things on them when these people had done everything they could in their lives to scratch together enough pieces of wood and tile or cement to have a place to live. One of the biggest problems in Cuba was and still is the housing shortage, but particularly then because people weren't allowed to buy land, they weren't allowed to buy a house. You could only trade a house with somebody else. So I sneaked into this area slowly and slowly and I got all the testimonies and we knew that the bulldozers were going to come in on X, Y, day. And by then they had already caught wind to the fact that I was planning to cover that. And they blocked all the entrances to that area. But I had given a camera to somebody in there. And so they filmed the last part of the piece or the next to the last part of the piece when the bulldozers went in and destroyed the homes of those people. And then afterwards I went up and finished the story. Anyway, when we put together that package on how the government or a wing of the government was destroying people's houses and the revolution, which had guaranteed in the Constitution that people would have a roof over their heads and had basically left them homeless. When that went to air, I remember sitting at home, shivering, thinking, all right, this is it. Now I'm going to be expelled. This is it. This is like, <laughs> this will never fly. <laughs> and I thought, well, they won't kill me like maybe Pinochet might have, but we're going to have to pack our bags and get out of here. And I was convinced. And lo and behold, I went the very next morning to a place where a lot of people were and one of the people from the central committee of cuba went past me and he said boy you what was the word candela he said candela he said you you really blew a bomb but he said it with a huge smile like he was like good on you good for you (laughs) it turned out that fidel had seen the story and he was livid but not with me he was livid with the housing authority system Apparently, he didn't know just how corrupt and how badly it worked or didn't work. And he fired the head of this housing commission. There was like a complete overhaul, thanks to the story. And a lot of those people were allowed to go back to where they had had their houses removed and were given help to put them back together again. So that was a good story for me. That's great. Yeah, those are two stories that, yeah, very clear impact And Cuba, I I know it can't be easy. Like, I imagine the whole first part, you probably had to slip your handlers and try to figure out how to do as much as possible in secret without them knowing. Oh, you're Um, always running away from them. They're always following you and you're running away from them. And they say, hey, and they're on a first name basis. But it's not like the handler handler. It's not not like a person you know. It's like the person from the secret police, the people from the spy. And they say, hey, Newman, you know, you're not supposed to be there. And so we shoot the last thing we can and then we run off and it's, it was almost funny at times because everybody knows who you are and you know who they are so there's no pretense anymore and they know that you know that they're listening to everything you say so when you really want to do something that you don't want them to know about you can't talk on the phone you got to go somewhere in a park it's like i say it's this matahari thing <laughs> but it's not easy because they're very gifted in the art of spying, and they know how to do it well. As everyone has always said, information is the key to power. And there, it's a small country with, with big enemies, or a big enemy, just 90 miles away across the Florida Straits. And so one of the things that has kept that regime, that government in power all these years is having information, information about their own people, about the dissidents, infiltrating dissident movements, all that. I don't know if anybody knows how to do it better. 
Yeah. When I was in China, they were pretty good about it. Communists tend to be pretty good about spying. Like they definitely tapped all of our phones. That's a given. <laughs> the phones, are, but you know, there's a lot more than just the phones. <laughs> you know, the walls. I, when I wanted something, I would scream at the walls, and then the next day it would happen because I would say, I'm gonna, huh. if, you, "If this doesn't happen, I'm going to call so and so, and it would be resolved." Because I was being listened to. I'm from my house. I'm not talking about the office. Right. Wow. If it's all right with you, the last section is the lightning round. It's more fast-paced questions. Do you feel ready for that? Yeah. Let's see what you throw at me. (laughs) What is a must-read publication that you look at almost every day? I cover Latin America, so none of them you probably know, but I read the Chilean newspapers, I watch the newscasts from all over the region, I watch El Globo, Folio Sao Paulo, I have chats with colleagues in Venezuela to see what's going on that I have to look at every single day, all day long, to see what's going on. Those are the sorts of things. It's all the sort of the breaking news. It's not a particular. I mean, I read the New York Times and all that later on. What is a publication that you read, listen to, or watch so it can be, you know, TV, radio, text, Mm. just for fun? I love those podcasts and or Zoom conversations that have come up now, especially with journalists that I admire, like Pato Fernandez. He's a Chilean political analyst and journalist, and he interviewed the other day John Lee Anderson. So I always hear John Lee whenever he's on a broadcast because I admire him and like him a lot. We're friends. Then uh, ProPublica, which Ginger Thompson, I think you must know, she's the former New York Times Pulitzer Prize winning journalist who does fantastic work in the U.S., and they write long-form investigative pieces, which I think are a must to read. I read that as often as I can. And I also am a contributor, by the way, because they're nonprofit so they can keep their independence. Let's see. And then the next one is, what's the best journalistic article piece, again, whatever medium that you've consumed recently? A story that was in ProPublica about how the immigrants in the United States are faring under the pandemic, under Trump. I thought that it was very, very well done. It was an investigative piece. I'll send you the link to that, but I thought it was very well done. Legal, illegal immigrants, or what was the focus? Illegal. It's about how they can't live and how they are being discriminated, how they can't find jobs. It's just the way that they do it. They go into great detail with fantastic profiles of people, first-person profiles of people. It's incredibly thorough and well done. So it's something that perhaps you might see a shorter piece in the New York Times, or you might see a story on the BBC or on Al Jazeera. We do those sorts of things, but they have a lot of time, and I don't know if they have resources, but I would say a lot of time and dedication and talent for doing these pieces that are exceptionally well-crafted. I'm jealous. (laughs) (laughs) yeah being able to spend time on a to really dig into time that's that's what we don't have and then the next question is is there any particular subject matter you're interested in a special interest that isn't related to your job you know i love to dance and i love to sing and i've just enrolled in a choir as part of a thing they have in Chile now, they call it the Concert for Humanity. And these are all people who are doing it on their own dime. But it includes a symphonic orchestra, and it's led by a professional 
choir director and a professional orchestra director. And all year you practice and then you put on a concert in January here in Chile. And the original idea was to bring together people or to recognize the changing face of Chile because the humanity of Chile looks very different. This was a monochrome country with people that were just more or less one color. And then we started having a huge influx of migrants, especially from Haiti, the Dominican Republic, parts of Colombia where people are black. And so lots and lots of black people and Venezuelans and people from other countries and cultures of the region started coming in. And it happened very, very quickly. I don't think anyone in the world has the racial composition of a country changed so quickly as happened in Chile in the last 10 years. I mean, it's been amazingly quick. So anyway, the concert was done for that. And some of the people who sing in the choir are not singers, or they weren't originally, but they were trained. And they're from all over the region as well. So I have now just asked to be a part of this new project. It's going to be Brahms Requiem. It'll be in January, and I'm going to start practicing how to sing. But apparently, I have talent. So they say, <laughs> let's see if I don't get kicked out. But I'm trying to do different things that are not about my job. I'm, I'm so happy in some ways that the pandemic and the Chilean explosion, as we call it, the social explosion that's happened here has allowed me to spend more time here. Because just being on the plane all the time doesn't give you the time to really delve into what goes on. Well, that's a cool hobby. And uh, what you just said ties into the next question, which is how do you manage your work-life balance or do you even believe in it? I believe in it, but I can't manage it. <laughs> I manage it very badly. That's, I'm terrible. Besides, I love my job. So it's like what I like is my job. It's, it's kind of hard to separate it. I mean, I'm always interested in what I'm doing. There are times I'm doing things I'm not interested in. But most of the time I set the tone and I say, this is what we should be doing. And, you know, I'm the Latin American editor. So what I suggest is more or less usually picked up on or accepted. I wish I could do it more in long form, but there's so many interesting things happening under your nose to do with the economy, to do with politics, to do with social issues, but also just human interest stories of any kind. I mean, everything is interesting and I'm being paid to cover it. It's a privilege. Definitely. Is Twitter important to you? No, don't be shocked, but I can't stand Twitter. I <laughs> I really don't like it. I force myself to use it because I need to know what's happening and because more and more people use it. So you have to be on top of it. But I don't tweet very much. I just use it to know what's going on. But what I don't like about it is that there's so much in there. You have to comb through so much stuff that's not even true. It's just very labor intensive for what you get out of it. But it's useful. As a journalist, when you have to cover breaking news, it's useful. And then the next question is, if you had to trade places with one journalist, living or dead, and you would have their career, who would ah. it be? Oh, boy. Hmm. I think Oriana Falacci. She was my inspiration, as well as my father. I read her interviews with history book, and that really just, I said, that's what I want to do. That's who I want to be. I mean, I think she was a very good writer. I thought she was incredibly gutsy and valiant, brave synonyms of the same word, I suppose, but also very talented and uh, very driven. So, Oriana Falacci. 
What is she most known for? Oriana Faraci is an extremely famous Italian journalist who has been published in every language in the world. And uh, you're probably much younger than I am, so that's probably why you don't know her. But most journalists of my generation and younger, especially women, have read her. She interviewed the Ayatollah Khomeini and she ripped off her shador and ran off in the interview. She went all over the world and interviewed the most important people, Henry Kissinger. She just did fascinating one-on-one interviews that were published everywhere in the New York Times, everywhere you can imagine. And she also wrote books, fantastic books. The most famous book of her interviews is called An Interview with History, and it's got the most important ones that she ever did. But she wrote a book called A Man about a Greek revolutionary a letter to a child never born. She's very prolific. Was she's died? She's no longer alive. She died in New York, but she was around for a long, long time, and she really set the bar very high for a long time for journalists of all languages. What do you think you bring to the table that makes you a good journalist? Oh my God! I didn't know you were going to ask me that. Uh, <laughs> it's a trick question. What do I bring? I suppose a lot of experience. And history, speaking of, you know, I have like an encyclopedia in my head of the region I cover. I know it so well that there are a lot of things that I understand why they happened because I know what's happened before. I'm not starting from scratch. I'm talking about 30, 40 years in one area where you can tie the links together, the pieces together. And I think history, you cannot understand the present without understanding what came before. That's impossible. And I think that's something that newer, younger journalists have to play catch up with. It's difficult. And I have it kind of at my fingertips or in my memory. And as long as I can still remember. (laughs) And of course, I have a passion. And I think I was born to do this. So I'll do it for as long as I possibly can. It doesn't matter how old I get. And then what is one thing you wish you could travel back in time and tell your younger self? To change, to stop and take a new course and shift when I first realize that it's time to change and not keep waiting because time is the one thing you don't get back. So my use of time, both in terms of my job and also in terms of my personal life, I think I would have made different decisions. Move on when you're ready. Move on faster. Not when you can't stand it anymore. <laughs> Some people have a, have a knack for that, and others were, were born for resistance for long term. <laughs> the resist factor, it's not always good. Right. And then, what is one thing that most people don't know about you? That I'm shy. <laughs> when I say I'm shy, they say, what? How can you be shy? You seem so sort of self-assured, and you stand in front of a camera in front of millions of people, and you interview. And no. I'm actually shy, and I'm camera shy, too. I hate having my photo taken. Actually, talking to people, it seems more common than you think. I think a lot of journalists like the having the mission, the objective, and that lets you kind of shed some of your shyness. But left to your own devices, you probably might not be that extroverted unless you had this mission. You've got to go out and report the news and talk to people. Exactly, exactly. When the shield is down, then, oh, dear, you know, what am I doing here? You know, that protective shield of your job, of your mission. Right, exactly. And then what is your favorite film, book, TV, or other piece of media about journalists and why? I don't read much about journalists. I mean, media about journalists or movies about journalists. I don't really like them. I mean, there are books and things that journalists write 
but nothing's about journalists. I started reading the book by Walter Cronkite, but I have to say there is one book, one exception to that rule, and that is one that my father took part in. It was a book that was published a long time ago, and it's called How I Got That Story, and he wrote one chapter in it. But the top journalists of the time, before, during, and after the Second World War, I'm sorry, wrote about stories that were very important, how they got these amazing stories. Again, they did that when there was no Twitter, no internet, no cell phone, no satellite feeds, nothing. And they got the most amazing stories by just doing journalism, amazing journalism. So in that book, How I Got That Story, I would recommend to anyone. Yeah, wow. That sounds like an amazing piece of history. I'll have to look for it. And then the final question is, Qualifications aside, if you couldn't be a journalist, what job would you do? Maybe work in something that I believed. It would have to be something that I believed in to make a difference. An NGO, maybe I would be a social worker. Save the Animal Fund, but most likely Amnesty International. I would like to work for Amnesty International. That would be something I could do. Sure, make a I'm difference. Doing what? I'm not sure, but I always think of myself doing all that, but still as a journalist. But no, as maybe in a different, but it's something that would make a difference. I'm very much driven by the sense of what's just and what's unjust or unjust that tends to be a kind of a constant in my life, my work. So, yeah, that's the interview. I'll just wrap up then by saying, yeah, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Lucia. Thank you for having me. That's our show. If you liked my interview with Lucia Newman, Latin America editor for Al Jazeera, I would highly recommend you check out my interview with Anthony Bodel, a correspondent with Reuters, in episode 29. Special thanks to Anthony for putting me in touch with Lucia, and his interview is also chock full with more wild stories from adventures throughout the Americas. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Lucia. I'll post links to some of her work and other things we talked about in the podcast description and also on our show page, foreignpod.podbean.com. If you like the show, please subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts, and leave a five-star rating. Beyond that, it would be a huge help if you also write out a positive review saying what you like about the show. It helps get the podcast more attention. Follow or tweet at me on Twitter at at foreignpod, on Facebook, our page is facebook.com slash foreignpod. If you want to send me an email, you can address that to foreignpod at gmail.com. Above all, if you know someone who might like the podcast, please recommend it to them. The show is produced and edited by me. Our music is a track called Love Chances by Mackay Beats. There's more information on that in the podcast description and on our show page. Please look for the next episode to be posted on Sunday, October 4th. Until then, I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence. Foreign Correspondence.